morning, everyone. I'm Meredith Dancos. I'm the teaching pastor here at The Rock, and we are in our final week of our series, What the Health? And we've been covering the seven deadly sins. We've already covered six of them. And if you've missed any of those, you can go listen to them on our podcast, on our website, and, uh, and catch up on lust and gluttony and greed and sloth and all the other fun things that we've been talking about. But today, we have saved the deadliest of the seven deadly sins for last. We are talking about pride. And some of you might be wondering, why is pride like the deadliest out of all of them? Because we have kind of mixed messages about pride. You know, there's one side where we say pride is like really bad. It's being arrogant, thinking you're better than everyone else. And you'll walk around with like this puffed up chest. And I think this video here shows that form of pride really well. Right, so one side of pride says, you know, you work hard, make your own luck, and like, may the best man win, right? And so that form of pride feels kind of yucky, and we all go, well, that's a, that, that, you shouldn't be that. But then we've got this other side where we talk about like being proud of yourself, and if you work hard at something and you accomplish something, you might feel really good about that. And so I've got another video that kind of embodies that form of pride. Right, so we see that form of pride and we go, oh, like there's something really great about that. And, and the truth is when we talk about pride in a way that says like, oh, you shouldn't think too highly of yourself. You shouldn't, shouldn't think too highly of something you accomplished. We get into some weird territory. Like I remember there was a, a woman who was telling the story one time where she was learning at a parallel park, which is not super easy. And one day she like did a great job of parallel parking. So she went and told her friends about it because she was really proud that she'd like learned this and accomplished this. And then the next day she got a flat tire and she was like, see, I was too proud and God was knocking me down a peg because I talked about being proud of parallel parking. And this is, this, both of these are this fundamental misunderstanding of what we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about pride. Because pride is more than just being arrogant and kind of being a jerk and thinking the best of yourself. And, and it's definitely not this idea of feeling good about something that you've worked hard at and you've accomplished. The reason why pride is considered the deadliest of the seven deadly sins is like all the other ones we've talked about, they're more than just your behavior. They're about something that's going on in your heart. Right? But pride is the root of all of those because pride is a disordered heart. Pride is a heart that says, I know best. My way is best. Pride is when we want to start playing the role of God in our own lives, or we start to think we know better than God. And so uh, Karen Lee Thorpe puts it well. She says this, in the biblical view, pride is the fundamental violation and disordering of love because it puts the love of the human self before the love of God. It begins by breaking the first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And it inevitably goes on to break the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So pride is really self-idolatry. When we put ourselves in the role of God and think that I should determine my life and that the world would really just work better if everyone did it my way. If God got on board with my plan and if you got on board with my plan, everything would be so much better. Pride is when we start to think, I know best. It essentially says to God, well, not your will be done, but my will be done. And when, when we get into this place, it starts to eat us up from the inside out. And it leads to all the other deadly sins because it's, it is the source of a disordered heart. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. He says, for pride is a spiritual cancer and it eats up the very possibility of love 
or contentment or even common sense. And I think that metaphor of, of pride being like a spiritual cancer is really, really great because just like cancer where your cells go rogue and it makes you sick from the inside out, Pride is when your heart goes rogue and you get, start to get sick from the inside out. And that's where you start to see all these other behaviors that, that aren't good for us and aren't good for others because something is fundamentally wrong at the core. And so if we really want to understand pride and this root of all the other sins, we have to go back to the beginning when pride enters the story. There's a reason why there's this saying, you probably heard it, pride goes before the fall, right? We're going to go back to the very beginning of our story where we see pride enter in, and that's in Genesis. And Genesis tells the story of why God created the world, why God created humanity, what God intended for us, and how everything just went terribly wrong, how it all went off the rails. So here we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then we're told God continues to go on, and he keeps creating order out of chaos. He creates water and land and sky, and then he creates animals to fill all those. And then he goes on to create humanity. And we, and we read this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And so God makes humanity. And, and after each phase of creation, God looks and says, this is good, this is good, this is good. He's, he's creating beauty and order, and, and then he creates humanity, and he looks back, and he sees everything he made, and he says, this is very good. This is very good, and so in the beginning of our story, everything is very good, and then God goes to give humanity purpose and meaning, and, and we read this, the Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat, freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And so God says to Adam and Eve, you're in charge of everything. All of this is yours. You know, and, and he entrusts them with something that he just made. Imagine making something that's so special and important, something that you're super proud of, and then you hand it over to someone else. Like say you created this amazing business from the ground up, and then you say, I'm going to hand it to you to run right? That's a, that takes a lot of trust to take something that is important to you and give it to someone else. And so God takes this thing that he just created, all of creation, and he hands it to Adam and Eve, and he says, I'm entrusting you with this. I'm entrusting you with this. And then God goes on to say, and now I'm inviting you to trust me. See, God chooses to trust Adam and Eve, and God gives them the choice to trust him because he puts this tree in the middle of the garden. And some of you are like, why would God do that, right? It's kind of like if I made this giant plate of warm chocolate chip cookies that just smell so amazing and I put them down in front of a five-year-old and I say, I'm just going to leave the room for a minute and I don't want you to eat a single one of these cookies, right? And you're like, that's pretty mean. Like, why are you tempting people with things, right? That would, that would feel mean. So sometimes we look at this tree and we think, why would God put this big temptation 
in the middle of the garden if he loves us? What is it just mean? Is he just putting us to the test? But no, really, God has set up creation where there is human free will. God has set up creation so that he doesn't always get his way. There's risk in the way that he set up creation because God is more concerned with love and God is more concerned with having a relationship than he is by just getting his own way because love always has to be a choice. If you're just pre-programmed to do everything that someone else wants you to do, you're not a human, right? You're a robot. And some of us think, man, if I had my say and I set up the world, I would totally make it so that everybody just did what I wanted and I don't need, I don't need choice to be in this, but that's not how God set it up. God set up the world so that Adam and Eve get to choose whether they want to trust God back. And this is where the root of pride starts to come in. So we read, the Lord God placed, oh, I already read that part. Uh, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. We're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So the serpent comes along, and he starts to sow these seeds of doubt. And he says, God, God doesn't want you to eat from any of these trees. Right? And he distorts what the, the prohibition just a bit. right? And, and he says, that, that seems pretty unreasonable. Right? Like, God, God must not really have your best interest in mind. There's got to be something else going on here. And that's where pride starts, is when these, these seeds of doubt, uh, we start to doubt, is God really on my side? Does God really know best? Is God saying that for my benefit or because maybe he's hiding something? Maybe he's keeping something from me. And you, so you see that start to enter into the story, that maybe God's not reliable. And then the serpent says, well, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And so he says, God is trying to keep something from you. See, up until this point, God has been their divine provider, right? They, he has given them life and breath and companionship and meaning and food and everything they have. Right? He's been their source. But the serpent comes along and says, oh, God's not really trying to be your provider. God is your competition. See, God knows that if you get the good stuff, you'll be just like him. And he doesn't want this. He's trying to keep you down. Right? And that's the temptation of pride right there. You will be like God. You get to play the role of God. You don't need to be dependent. You don't need to trust anyone. You can trust yourself. You get to take that role. And so then it, we read, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give to her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and then gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And they begin to believe, yeah, God is trying to hold me back. God is trying to keep something from me. But we have to ask, well, what's so wrong about knowing good and evil? Right? Like, why is God trying to keep them from knowing good and evil? What's the problem there? And the reality is, it's not the knowing that's the problem. It's not that they couldn't know good and evil. It's the source of the knowing. See, up until that point, God was their source to tell them what was good and what was not good. God said to them, don't eat from that tree. You will die. Right? He's, he's giving them the wisdom to say, 
this is not good for you, this is good for you. When they take the fruit, they say, I don't want God to tell me what's good and evil. I don't want, I don't want that wisdom. I want wisdom for myself. I want to be the source. I want to have the knowledge of what's good and evil. I will decide. And that's where pride comes in, is when we say, I don't want to depend on your wisdom. I don't want to see it through your eyes. I know best. But the problem is when they take that fruit, they break off from their source. They break off from their source of wisdom, from their source of life, from their source of, of creation, and, and their whole world breaks as well. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And yes, their eyes are open, and now they have a knowledge that they didn't have, but everything is broken. And shame and hiding and blame enter the story. And we see everything start to fall apart because they took a role that was not meant to be their role. And when we start to think my way is best and I know best and I'm going to rely on myself, we start to see the root of all the other sins, right? Because we've been talking about this. And so pride is the root of the other six deadly sins. So lust is I will satisfy myself. I know what satisfies Gluttony is I will fill myself. I don't need you to fill me. I will fill me. Greed is I will provide for myself. I know what's best. I know what I need. Sloth is I will choose for myself. Rather than allowing you to guide me, I will choose what I want. Wrath is I will avenge myself. And envy is I know what is best for myself. In all of these, we see that the, the heart is the problem, right? And it's this heart that is turned against God, that is, that is distant from God. When, when we make choices that disconnect us from God, a heart at odds with God leads to a life at odds with God. And so pride is at the center of all of these because pride says, my way. I want it my way. Joyce Meyer says this, pride is an independent, me-oriented spirit it makes people arrogant, rude, and hard to get along with. When our heart is prideful, we don't give God the credit, and we mistreat people looking down on them and thinking we deserve what we have. So pride is, is a heart at odds with God, which leads to a life at odds with God. And all of this, at the center of all of this, is choice. God set up the world that your choices actually matter. You have the power to steer your own life. And here's the thing. Your choices, they add up. They culminate. Greg Boyd says, you make your choices until your choices start to make you. And they start to solidify you. And soon, you can't make another choice. That's, that's, the, that's the power of human free will, that God has allowed us to actually have a real impact and say on our lives and the rest of the world. And so when we make choices, they matter. They, we become the decisions we make. And Greg Boyd tells this great story that I think embodies 
pride and all of its glory. He has a book called Letters from a Skeptic, and he's writing letters back and forth to his father around faith, and he tells this story about this woman that he met. And he met this, this old woman. She was, she was in her you know, 80s or 90s, and she was just the meanest, most miserable, grouchy, bitter person he'd ever encountered. She was mean to him. She was mean to everyone. And, and he was really put off by it. And he asked about it, like, why is this woman so mean? And they, people in the church, because he met her in the church, and they said, well, she, when she was younger, she was actually, like, super personable and lovely and wonderful to be around. He's like, well, then what happened? Well, when she was 19, she was engaged, and her fiancé ran off with her sister three days before the wedding, right? So she was understandably hurt, embarrassed, humiliated. But she made a choice to not forgive. She made a choice to hold on to that bitterness over 50 years. Her, her sister tried for over 50 years to make amends, and she refused and refused and refused. And this is the thing. Bitterness, when you allow bitterness to get into one part of your life, it doesn't just stay there. It starts to seep in, and it, and it colors the whole way you see the world. And this woman eventually became her choices. She became her anger and her hatred and her bitterness, and it, and it solidified into her character. I love, Greg Boyd says it like this, the momentum of her decision became irreversible. The momentum of her decision became irreversible because she said, you see pride at the center of this, my way is better. I'm justified to hold on to my anger. I don't have to forgive. She should feel bad. My life should have gone the way that I thought it should go. And here's why pride is so deadly. Because this woman, because she made this choice to hold on to her bitterness, her anger, her rage, and yes, she was justifiably hurt, but because she refused to actually hear how God calls us to live, she forfeited all the goodness that God could have intended for her life. Right? Because she, she chose to go her own way and it started to solidify her character. She wasn't open to what God might have. And God gives us the ability to do that with our lives. We have the ability to choose opposite of what God wants for us. And, and that is why pride is so deadly in our own lives. Because we are at risk of forfeiting all the good things that God has for us. When we fall into the trap of thinking, again, if everyone just did it my way, right? If everybody thought the way that I think, if everybody did the things that I want them to do, the world would work fine. You're pretty much in pride right there, right? I know best. I know best. And here's the thing. With all of the seven deadly sins we've talked about, there's a virtue that gets distorted, Right? And the virtue that gets distorted when it comes to pride is humility. And just like pride can't be boiled down to simple arrogance and thinking too highly of yourself, humility is not having a low opinion of yourself. Humility is having a right perspective of yourself, where you actually fit in in the universe, what your rightful place is. C.S. Lewis says it like this. In God... You come, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. Humility is the sense of I shouldn't be playing God in my own life. And we see humility at, in, on display for us by Jesus in another garden. 
We go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus, he's, this is before he's handed over to his enemies, before he's crucified. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to his Father. And he's praying. He's agonizing because he knows what is about to come. He knows that he's about to endure suffering. And what's so interesting in the Bible is they rarely talk about the physical suffering that Jesus underwent. And he did undergo severe physical suffering. But really, the emphasis is on the spiritual suffering that Jesus is about to undertake. That Jesus knows that he is about to be separated from God. He's truly going to take our place, just like we are disconnected from our life source, that he will be in that moment disconnected from God. And he agonizes over it, and he agonizes, and he's praying, and he's praying, and he says this to the Father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus in his humanity, he also has a choice in that moment. He can choose to go his own way. He can choose to say, no, I don't want to do this. And you, and you see, he has the freedom to say, if there's any other way, I do not want to do this if there's any other way. But then he comes back to how we are rightly supposed to be ordered with God. But I surrender my will because you know best. You know best. And Philippians 2 captures Jesus' attitude of heart in this moment so well. He says this, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. See, Jesus had the choice to say no. And Jesus hadn't done anything to actually be separated from God. He was taking our place. And even though it was scary, and even though it would be, it would be turmoil, and it, would be, and it would be so hard, he willingly went because he trusts God. And so Jesus' obedience in that moment, it reorients our spirit, and it gives us the ability to make a new choice, to, to say no to one way of living and yes to another way. See, this is what that woman that, that Greg Boyd spoke of never did, right? She was never able to surrender her own will and to learn to forgive as she had been forgiven. I mean, she'd, she'd been in the church all those years, but she was never able to say, no, not my will, God. You don't, you don't desire vengeance. You don't desire for me to harbor a grudge. You tell me to forgive even my enemies. But no, I will not surrender my will to live under your way. And Jesus, he shows us what real humility is, which is the surrendering of our will to God's will in trust. But we are no different than that woman. Left to our own devices, every single one of us thinks we know best. Every single one of us is stuck in this state where we are disconnected from our true source of wisdom, where we are, we are our posture to begin with is no to God and yes to ourselves. Paul says it like this in Romans. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam sinned, brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. See, we're all, we're all stuck in the same boat where we are our own source of wisdom and knowledge. And left to our own devices, we steer our life in a way that is selfish and that ends up really hurting ourselves and hurting others. 
But it is Jesus' obedience in this moment. It's Jesus going to the cross on our behalf that opens a new way. Because Paul continues and he says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. See, it's Christ's humility that is the remedy to our pride. It's his obedience that allows us to say, yes, I will surrender this place that I've taken in my life where I've centered the world around myself and think that my needs are the most important. And, I, and Jesus has opened the way for us to come back in humility. And this is what's known as repentance. And repentance is essential to humility. It is essential to faith because repentance is making another choice. It is choosing to go a different way. A great Christian thinker who um, has passed on but has been incredibly helpful, his name is Eugene Peterson. He speaks about repentance in a way that I think is the most helpful. And he says this. He says, repentance is not an emotion. It is not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, the education, and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world, and it is deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. See, we have been given choice, and we have the freedom to to steer our lives in whichever direction we want, and we are naturally bent because of sin to steer our lives away from God. But Jesus has opened a way for us to actually say yes to God because repentance in the Greek means to change your mind or change direction. It means to say, I've been going this way and I've decided this is not the right way and now I'm going to go this way. And when we change our mind, when we change direction, we change the way we live. Our life changes as well. It's not just a feeling, right? Because many of us feel bad about the bad things that we do and then we keep doing them. Repentance is saying, I am going to live differently. I'm going to surrender this wrongful place that I've taken. It is leaving the first garden where we say to God, no, not your will, but my will be done. And is moving to the second garden where Jesus helps us say, not my will, but your will be done. It is saying no to the lies that we were told in the beginning that you could be like God. You could be your own source of wisdom. You can, you can discern what's right and wrong for yourself. And replugging back into this source of wisdom that says, actually, I am the one God, I am the one who can teach you what is truly right and what is truly wrong. I am the one who can give you the wisdom to live a life that will bless you and bless the world. Peterson says this, The truth about me is that God made and loves me, and the truth about those sitting beside me is that God made them and loves them, and each one is therefore my neighbor. The truth about the world is that God rules and provides for it. The truth about what is wrong with the world is that I and my neighbor sitting beside me have sinned in refusing to let God be over us, for us, and in us. Repentance is choosing to say no to the lies of the world that say you can run your own life. 
and yes to the truth of God, to say God created you on purpose, with a purpose, and there's only God who can help you know what is right from wrong. So to close our series, because you know, over the last seven weeks, I hope may, you know, maybe all of them have hit you. I mean, I know that even putting the sermons together, I'm like, yeah, you got all seven. I have all seven. Uh, but maybe one in particular has really stood out to you. And you've said, you know, I, I've been trying to steer my life this way. And the root of it really is I'm trying to play God in my own life. And so I want to give us the opportunity to actually practice repentance this morning. Because repentance is merely saying, God, I step out of the, this role and I let you play it. I surrender my will to your will. And so we're going to have prayer teams. We have a team up in this corner, in that corner, and then Steve and I will be down here in front. And I'm going to invite you to be brave today during our worship song. And if you want to respond in prayer, if you want someone to pray with you or pray for you, stop and think, what does repentance look like in my life? And maybe repentance is I have been holding on to a grudge and desiring vengeance the way that I think that it should happen. Or maybe it's I've been forcing this plan through my life. Or I've been holding on to this plan. I'm angry and resentful that God hasn't said yes to me. Maybe, maybe repentance is coming to God and saying, God, I need you to heal me. Maybe it's a he- an emotional wound, a spiritual wound, a physical wound. Saying, God, you are the source of my life. Whatever repentance looks like for you, you are free to stay in your seat and and pray by yourself as you want to, but I would encourage you, there's something powerful when we allow the community to carry our burdens with us and pray for you and with you. And so you can stay seated if you want. You can stand up and and respond in worship if you'd like, and you can come forward for prayer if you'd like. I'm going to pray for all of us, and then we're going to respond in worship. Gracious God, thank you that you are God and that we are not, and we ask for you to take your rightful place in our lives, Lord. We repent that we often steer our lives in a way opposite of how you would want us to live. Lord, would you please help us to have true humility the way that Jesus has taught us to say, not my will, but your will be done. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this time to move in this room as we pray for and with one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we, as we respond in worship. And uh, again, we have prayer teams in the two back corners and then one up front. You're welcome to come forward whenever you feel comfortable.